Greetings, Mama. Good evening. Well, very exciting day. I think this is super um, classic. Can you tell the people where you are right now? I am in Miami, Florida. No, literally. Where is your physical body? Well, I'm right now in my car driving over to the YWCA to do a talk on climate and health in the Overtown community. Let me tell you, it is a good fortune for me that I have half of your genetics because I don't know if I'd have had such an in, you would have been able to make time. That's true. I am busy lately. Yeah. Well, moms, <laughs> you let the internet on fire when sec- excuse me, Secretary Ocasio-Cortez, Representative Ocasio-Cortez asked you a question and the people were not ready for it. So what was it, uh, what's it like right now being somebody who testified? into Congress? Well, being an accidental climate advocate, I am quite surprised. It's kind of exciting and fun, but surprised at how many people hadn't made some of the connections that I thought was kind of obvious about climate change and health. So before we talk about that, how did you actually come to be in front of Congress? Well, I did a talk. Well, not a talk. I was interviewed by NPR on the weekend edition, which was, which came out as a result of some work I've been doing in our community on educating clinicians on climate and health. And I was I wrote an op-ed piece for which was picked up by the Miami Herald, telling what experience I had in the community and how much climate change is impacting us now and especially what's going to happen to our vulnerable population. And from that article, I and some of my other work with George Mason University, one of the doctors who was invited to speak on the on this, this um, testify, Dr. Bernstein out of Harvard, referred them to me. Can you tell me the story of how you even came to be an accidental climate change person? Because you're not a climate change specialist, turns out. Nope, I'm not. As a matter of fact, I was really part of the National Medical Association Environmental Committee. And when we do environmental justice work, we were more interested in chemicals and pollution and the issues that you hear in um, Alabama and our water quality and our air quality in more of the social justice realm and trying to get different chemicals banned, especially chemicals in our hair products, because black women use a lot of the the hair products, which has a lot of chemicals that were never tested, and we feel could have some modifiers and some different health issues. And I got called to do another project, and just to help out, and they're asking me about anything I've seen with the climate. And I started thinking back, and I had a patient who came to me, and I tell the story because she's the first one that I went, oh my goodness, she had COPD, which is a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and she generally has been well controlled. She has some asthma on top of it, so you can have both ways. And she was pretty well controlled on the steroid inhaler and also some the what we call the rescue inhaler. She'd use that intermittently. But this was 2016, and we had an incredibly hot summer. Actually, it wasn't even summer. It was earlier than summer. It was just hotter than usual. And I didn't think about it being one of the hottest years. I just knew that my patients were coming in a little bit more frequently for those asthma inhalers. I saw they were using more nasal inhalers for their allergic rhinitis. 
and there was just a lot more discomfort because I work with a poor population who tend, tend not to have air conditioner, or if they have air conditioner, they really can't afford to use it, and they only use it when it's really necessary. And my patient needed more inhalers, and then she asked me at the end of the visit, she says, could I, could I fill out this form for her? And I looked at this form. It was a form from the electric company called Florida Power and Light. So Florida Power and Light has a special program. If you can't pay your bills, you can apply, but you got to have life-threatening medical condition and need special equipment. And that was the time and the form. That's what the form says. So when I looked at this form, I'm like, I don't know if I can legally say that you meet all the criteria. But on the other hand, this lady really couldn't breathe. And even though she wasn't at a point that she needed to be hospitalized, she really needed some help in using her air conditioner most of the nights because it was so hot. So we could avoid the hospitalization. So I was stuck with a form that she didn't quite meet the criteria and not knowing what's the best step for this patient. So I referred her to social worker to see what other programs they have and how we can assist her and see how we can use this form as best we could. But for many patients like her, there really is no avenue. They'll lose their electricity because they don't meet the strict criteria. And from there, I started hearing more problems, again, more and more, and every year it just got worse. And then we got the Zika. So starting with that, I told that story at a a presentation. And from that story, folks like, wow, they didn't write, they didn't think about it, that this impact that poor people, it's not just the polar bears, it's not just what we see on television, it's not just sea level rise, it's not all the people on Miami Beach losing their waterfront and their sand, but it's people like my patient who can't, basically can't breathe at night and can't sleep and can't afford to pay all the bills. So that... Yeah, was she the first person... Was she the first person who you thought, you know, this is when you connected climate change to deteriorating health and economic impacts? Yeah, she she was because most of my other patients, when they needed the bill, they were on the machines, they were on the nebulizers, and they'll pay for they they were they were more advanced, and so I didn't think twice that yeah they can't afford it and they need it. But here is somebody who wasn't advanced but who was becoming advanced because of the changes. I mean, she had been doing well. And being on a fixed income, these inhalers are incredibly expensive. Now, butyrol inhaler, which is a risk inhaler, can be $30, $40 per inhaler. The steroids, and we subsidize our patients, but at some point, even when you're a fixed income, it's you can't, there's just no more money. So even if I say the inhaler costs $10, if you don't have $10, you don't have $10. So... You can't get it. So this is the issue. So she was using the little extra money she had to buy her extra inhalers, which means she didn't have any money left to pay her light bill. No, so this is what I started noticing, and especially like the steroid nasal inhaler, those are also expensive. So you add a week or two to the allergist season, you're adding more money to a patient who already has no money. And our allergist seasons are starting earlier and earlier because spring is coming earlier and earlier. And they're more more pronounced. And that's when I started doing more reading. Wait a sec. Why is everybody needing this nasal inhaler more? Um, something we call um, pluticasone, which is the nasal spray that we 
pretty inex- the most inexpensive, but it's still too much for people who are already on fixed income or have very low income. And now we're adding an extra month of treatment to their cost because yeah, it's just the allergy on. season is starting early. Just piling on, yeah. Yeah. So, moms, you've been a doctor for what thirty something years. This isn't the first yep. time. This isn't the first time you've been able to identify trends like this. Where in the past have you seen uh, something that started off sort of on a really granular level, sort of slowly build into into a larger nationwide issue? Well. I mean, I came up and I trained during the HIV, the early years, when we didn't know what HIV was until we saw the epidemic, the worldwide epidemic. And in the U.S., we thought it was just a little, with just a few people in a certain segment of the population. They thought it was just a gay person's disease. Do you have any stories? When I was out. Do you have any stories? Do you remember the first time you encountered somebody who was infected with HIV? Wow. Well, the first time the first time i mean i go way back so i'm going back to 70 i left medical school in 84 so this is around 83 and i went to st vincent hospital anybody knows it's no longer in existence st vincent hospital was a hospital in greenwich village and in 83 in greenwich village and st vincent hospital medical wards were just room full of these men who were gasping for air and often had purple patches, were emaciated, and nobody really knew what was going on. We had heard about the virus, but they, the whole treatment, everything was still in research, and everyone was pretty scared. Now, I was a medical student, and I tend to be very, I'll help you, help you, help you, and I don't mind going into situations. I'm kind of, I didn't really know the details. And the residents would send me into different patients, especially patients who were by themselves. And one day they sent me into this room with this man. He was a white male. He looked like those Holocaust victims that you saw in the pictures. And he had on a what we call a non-rebreather mask. That's the, the mask that gives as much oxygen as possible before we put the tube in the mouth to help into the lungs to help them breathe. And he gasped and gasped, and I'd go in in the mornings and try and talk with him a little bit. He could barely talk, but he would give me a smile. And I just remembered the purple patches all over his skin. And what really, I never forget his face because he always reminded me of those Holocaust pictures. And there was this young man there, and usually he was, there was no one else with him. In many of these rooms, there was nobody else. The residents hardly went in. Nobody really went in to see him too much except pretty much I would go in and see him, and then one day he was gone. And that's how it was for many of our patients at that time. But what was striking, they were always alone and dying. And from that, I went up to Harlem and met even more patients. And then we started seeing women, and we started seeing drug users, and they weren't all gay. And many black people and Hispanics and women because before you thought it was just going to be a male disease, but we started seeing black women with this. And coming to Miami, I saw more women, and women from all walks of life. Not, you know, they're no, not all prostitutes. There are mothers, there are grandmothers, all ages. And this is what we saw until we could get to some point of getting the treatment and the diagnosis and really getting people into care. But before that, we saw the people coming and 
we knew this was not just a gay person disease. This was not just a male disease because that's what we saw in our clinics before the researchers caught up to it. One of my most memorable moments is a young mother. She and her daughter was about three, four at the time. And our goal was to try and keep her alive until her daughter graduated from high school. And so the minute the research came up and one of the first trials opened for AZT, we got her on it. And she's still alive today. Her daughter is has grown up. She's now a grandmother. And that's when you see that we can with action, but we got to do it together. We got to have the whole community, the whole world working together because and you need some voices. So in the HIV epidemic, I really didn't get, besides being a treater and going to the conferences and calling Congress people, I wasn't out there very much with it. I just really worked in the grassroots and tried to do the programs and try to get the condoms and try to educate, but I wasn't out with the policy and being loud. But if it weren't for groups like ACT UP and all the brave gay men who spoke out loudly, we wouldn't be where we were, where we are now at HIV, where we're getting closer and closer to a cure. And if we don't get to a cure, we can get to untransmittable, where we can get to the point where, you know, this is not going to be something that folks have to get. And that's after only 30 years. But that's because folks spoke up. So when this thing started with climate change and I started being more of my patients, with what seems like minor complaints, can't paying a light bill, your asthma needing extra asthma medicine, needing extra doses, their kids, the mold. And being in South Florida, I see a lot more of the lung and the heat complaints. And so what are we going to do? And so learning from what I saw in the past, I thought this is a time that I can't just treat and do more. I wanted to do more this time. And how has the experience been for you, being more of a nationally public person? Well, you know, interesting. It's been rewarding in that folks are listening. I was very happy that the newspapers picked up. And I think being just sort of place and time, place always matters. If I weren't in Florida, it probably wouldn't be so impactful. But being that Florida, we get the brunt of the hurricanes. We get the Zika. We are now with the sea level rise. We're getting the the water intrusion, we're getting the high tide. Uh, People are more ready to listen. So space, time, everything has come together, aligned so that my voice can be heard. So I'm grateful for that. It's not my work in that regard that these things have happened. Uh, It's just, I guess the universe is coming together. So it's exciting and it's good, but my goal is not so much for me to do it, I really want to use the model as what happened back with the HIV activism. It really is the collaboration. We want it to be groups. We want everybody involved and we want everyone to speak up. So it's not just me out there, but it's a group of us that's out there on every avenue. And also what happened in HIV, I don't want repeated, that when the vulnerable population were the ones that are most impacted, it's the silence returned and folks are not being aware. And 
being able to put the resources towards the vulnerable population because it's no longer just rich gay men. It's no longer Elizabeth Taylor type friends that are out there, but it's the patients, poor Hispanic, poor Blacks, especially young poor Black men who have sex with men who are most impacted by HIV, and we don't see the, the support like we should. And with climate change, the group that will be most impacted are going to be the most vulnerable in our population, the elderly, the poor, the children. So I don't want that model, what happened with HIV, repeated in this population. So I don't want just my voice. I want more and more people mm. involved. Moms, I know that you are probably arriving soon, so I'm just going to ask you this last question, which is everybody I talk to who knows more or less how busy your life is always gives me the same question, which is how do you do it? How do you find time? How do you juggle it all? Because can you just run through all the things that you do? <laughs> well, I am singularly blessed with the ability to focus intently, get in the flow quickly, and use my time as quickly as possible. So, Okay, yes, but you my, are a medical I school am, professor. Yeah, I'm a professor. I work, my main training is internal medicine and HIV specialist. So I treat HIV patients, and I do that. I do regular general internal medicine. I teach medical students. And my community work, my major community work, is in mentoring the next generation of physicians and increasing the number of underrepresented physicians. And through that, I do a huge program in the community called STEM Saturday, where we're in 14 different communities every month doing some activity and working with the medical students and the college students. And my ultimate goal is to develop a strong program where I've already started working as education as a social determinant of health, where we can use the physicians to evaluate the, social, the educational goals of our patients and then help link them to different programs, link them back to getting whatever they need, GED, get their kids getting tutoring, doing, addressing their education needs, because if they're educated, they can then make better health choices, get better careers, because, you know, the healthier you are, the wealthier you are, the wealthier you are, the healthier you are. And wealth often equates to education in our society. So we, so that's my main program, and that takes a lot of hours. And, of course, I do research in my area of research is in education, in mentoring, and also in transgender women and HIV prevention, because the most vulnerable of our HIV-infected people are young black men and sex with men, and transgender women. So our goal, my goal there is to see how we can then impact them and help decrease the transmission and the role of medication in doing that. So, yeah, I do a lot, but it's really... Oh, you forgot two things. What else do... Oh, I do Jamaica hypertension. How could I forget? Um, I do hypertension. I forgot about that Yeah, I do hypertension in Jamaica. Um, Hypertension, which is a huge killer, which I've been doing hypertension from college. So I've maintained some contact with the hypertension literature and work and trying to do more screening and education. So I do that. And hopefully my paper, our paper we've been working on, will be published soon this year. And Mm -hmm. I do work in my church, trying to get my church Mm -hmm. doing work there. Mm -hmm. And the medical society. Yeah, and National Medical Association. I'm president of the state 
um, trying to make the black physicians improve their viability, improve our awareness, and just improve the mentorship. And what else do I do? I do so much. But I know you do. You you also do climate change. Yeah, and climate <laughs> the change. Purpose yeah. But and also, moms. Yeah. I do. Hello. I have a social life. That is true. You oh, trust me, you have a full social life. But yeah. hello, moms. Oh, I'm a mom. Oh. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you're an adult. <laughs> no, but I mean, this yeah. is in recent history. You also yeah, raised true. me. Is that's true? I did that because I've been doing this. That's true. Yeah, but luckily yeah, you're I a single mom for my entire on, life. <laughs> that's true, but um, but luckily you're so much on autopilot. You've always been so mature, and I could just have a discussion with you, and you do the right thing. So you are pretty easy in that regard. Mm, you're and welcome. you would go, and you would go with me everywhere and participate in all these activities. You went to many meetings and many programs and many parades and protests and everything else. You were there. This is true. So okay, so mom's question, how do you do it? Yeah, how do I do it? I tell folks, 24 hours. Your key is make sure you get enough sleep. So I try to get at least seven, and I block that off. And the other hours, and then at least one hour sometime for exercise. So you put at least an hour. You may not get a full hour of exercise, but you get some exercise. And so what <laughs> does that leave you? And for the record, uh, she has her treadmill in front of the television in the family room. Yes, my treadmill is in the family room. So while I do my (laughs) watching my television, I do my treadmill. So then that leaves you 16 hours to do stuff. But you've got to focus. So I definitely get into my flow and I do it. And I write. Luckily, I'm a writer. I can write quickly. And I don't write stylishly. But I write very straightforward, um, like medical text. I did a lot of writing at school at Princeton, so you write. And if you can write quickly and well, the key to getting anything done is communicating and harnessing other resources. And you can do that through writing. So by the time I write what I need, put everything down quickly, and then execute. I will execute because I'll follow through. And I will call and I'll get people and I'll stay on top of things. And I keep my list and I file mentally, but now I'm learning to file more on paper and in the computer. And I find this new technology with cell phone and apps and texting and keeping everything there and reminders has made it a lot easier. I can then communicate with 100 people with just one little um, text message. So some of the work that I do in organizing and communicating with the doctors are done very efficiently through the email and through text groups. Now, the other research, again, is leveraging my community network. And since I've worked forever in the community, I've built on what I've already established. So I'm not doing a lot of new work. So to communicate on climate change in the same vulnerable population that I've always worked is just connecting in that network and setting up communicating about climate change in that network. Like now I'm going to speak to the YWCA in Overtown. I've been doing work in Overtown for 20, 30 years on HIV and obesity. I do work on obesity too, childhood obesity, but it's the same network and it's often the same people. So you build on what you have and build towards my strengths. My strengths are then connecting in coordinating efforts and coordinating resources 
and doing public speaking or writing. So whatever I do within the different areas that I work, it's pretty much building on those four strength areas. I don't take on a lot of new things that I really am not good at because then that takes time to develop those skills and go towards it. So I build on the skills I already have, build on the network I already have, and then efficiently just communicate my needs and communicate what I want to teach to that community and leverage the resources. So with those, with that, you can do a lot in, um, you can do a lot in the time allotted, in the 16 hours you have. And I try and have specific goals in mind and not go way beyond my ability or the ability of the group that I work with. Resources matter. And so you have to be aware of the resources that you have. And time is one of the resources. I'm not going to take on projects that are going to be three years long unless I anticipate that it's some incremental changes over the three years. And those I am able to predict and I'll have those small milestones and that's part of the plan. I do lay out the plan and hope to get the strategy and get the, the areas that I'm not strong in, which is I don't do the clerical type work well. I don't do all the scheduling of meetings. So I'll often find somebody else who will do that and keep on top of things. But I'll get the overall picture going and I'll connect everyone. Like I did a conference on Friday and it was a workshop that we developed to help improve the climate literacy. Now, there are four lecturers. I can't do any of those because I couldn't even attend. But I was able to find the people, set up the, make sure the topics that we have, tell them the goal of the presentation, and then implement. So my strength is in coordinating, managing the, the, the program. The ideas, you know, I'd like a lot of collaborative work. So if I have one big idea... I then use all the folks who are working with me to help tweak it and allow them to be able to implement some of their ideas in the tweak, which then makes them much more involved in the process. So that often folks want to micromanage. I never micromanage because if I micromanage, then I have to do all the work. Right. So that's how I do it pretty much. You make it sound easy. Um, (laughs) But you got to be willing to do the work because I'm out there. I'm not one of that's these true. folks that will delegate. No, that's I'll true. be there with you. I will do the yeah, work. I mean, look, just from that thing on Friday, that last conference, you were conference on Friday, Alabama on Saturday and Sunday, graduation on Monday, Congress on Tuesday. What did you do yesterday? Take a nap? Yeah, pretty much came back and started working for my presentation today. And now you're going to the presentation so and I'm, talking to me in the car. I'm, I mean, And talking to you in the car. Yeah, I'm on the ground. I love doing the work because I love people and I love being with them and seeing the improvements. And also to be successful and keep it for 30 years, you've got to see the incremental successes, the small ones and the small improvements. I tell folks, my students, I tell them, I have a patient who is substance abuse. I've had her for three years and we've been working on her to stop drinking and get in high. And the way she's going to prove it is try not to come to clinic drunk or high. So three years, the last visit she came in, she was sober. Ooh, congratulations. And we celebrated. Yeah. Now, most folks would be so frustrated, I've written her off. 
but it took three years and she came to clinic sober. And she said, I'm a woman of my word. And I said, I always knew it. There you go. And that's to keep going. You just got to believe in them and it'll happen. Well, I can say, moms, I thank you for believing in me in the same way, even your, in your own way. So thanks. And uh, anything else you want to say that you haven't said? This has been a jam-packed no, 30 it. minutes. My gosh. Yeah. Yep. We did well. Thank you. All right. And join. Uh, you know what? Everyone can take action when it comes to climate change. Yeah. And that's my basic message. We have all got to take action. Whether something small as you get rid of your plastic and you cut down on your electricity or you join a group and get the word out and vote. But I am look I'm with the started the Florida Clinicians for Climate Action, so physicians can find a way to take action. Because we have got to do it. We have about thirty years to make that change and we could did it we did it with HIV and people are alive and my grandma my patient is a grandmother, about to be a great grandmother. So we can accomplish so much in 30 years. So we got to make it now. But we start now. Thank you cool. very much, Jahan. Thanks, moms. Oh, Jahan. Okay, Jaja. you called me that? I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I was I was trying to be formal, but Jaja, you're doing well, my boy. You're doing well. Oh, thanks, moms. Thanks, All right, everyone. Walk good. Walk good. Okay. Bye, moms. Thank you. Bye. Well, there you have it, my mom, Dr. Cheryl Holder, on why and how she does all that she does. I don't know how you can get in touch with her, but you can message me on Instagram at Jahan Sharif or email me through my website, jahansharif.com, and we can figure it out. While you're there, catch up with past installments of Jaja In. I've spoken to all sorts of people who are using their lives to build community and foster deeper relationships, like Jesse Morton the most prolific English-language al-Qaeda recruiter in the history of the jihad, and how he's building a community of former extremists to counter future extremism. Lots more good stuff to come, so sign up for my weekly newsletter delivered right to your inbox every Saturday morning. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with my mom, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. You know, I'm lost. You know, I'm always lost no. trying to get to these places. So I didn't put them into GPS. Shock. Okay. Yep. Got to go. Bye, mom. I know. I don't know how I get things done. I can never find anywhere. <laughs> oh, you know, that's the one thing, not my strength. You know, I've never been good with this thing, getting around, unless I have a map. All right. Talk to you again. Bye.